I got this habit now when I see people in church when I'm driving my school bus, I honk at them. I actually honked at Christine. That was me today. Did you, did you catch it? In bus 50, man. So you watch it. I get you when you're on the street. I, I scared the pants out of Mike Phoenix yesterday, man. I, you you sh- should have seen how high he jumped on the sidewalk. He was crossing the street. I just caught him on the corner, man. He kind of jumped and then he ducked. I was running for cover somewhere, man. It's hilarious. So watch it. I'll get you. I'll get you. And them bus horns, they're powerful too. You get you get addicted to the power on those things. They're not like one of these little Toyota horns. They're, they're strong. All right. We're in the book of First Peter. How many here last week with us? Praise God. You guys enjoyed that? I thought that was a good study. I do say so myself. I even taught myself something last week. And uh, and we uh, quick summary from last week. We this whole chapter really, and going into chapter three, you know, Peter's instructing the church on, on how to act. Um, you know, the first thing that he said is we gotta learn how to be separate. We need to learn how to separate ourselves. There's nothing wrong with being separate. As a matter of fact, God has created difference. So we, um, you know, God made differences, and, and particularly for the church. And one of the reasons why is because he wants us to stand out. And there are various ways that we can, we can do that. Um, and then he, the other characteristic that the church should show is they should show um, humility by submitting, um, and he's gonna. We touched a little bit on that last week um, with regards to governors, government, and um, but there are exceptions, as we saw. We pointed out the life of Daniel, um, the life of Peter. There are things that sometimes God, as you know, what God wants you to do according to His Word, and man tries to put an ordinance or a rule. Um, contrary to what God is saying, and we're forced to make a choice. Um, But the point that I thought Peter brought out beautifully in his letters that we touched on last week is, if you're going to resist an ordinance from from, from from the law, help me out there, guys, what's going on here? There you go. If you're going to resist an ordinance or something like that, what we have to do is we have to be prepared to suffer the consequences. And sometimes that could rely on, you know, someone, you know, being put in prison or even worse. Okay? So the point that was made there was is that um, it's all right. She's okay with it. They'll take care of her. The point being, though, is is that if you're going to resist the ordinance, be prepared to pay the price, okay? All right, everybody up here, everybody pay attention to me right now. Everybody get your eyes up here on the word, all right? So if you're going to resist authority, then what you need to do is you need to have something in your heart that you're going to be prepared to suffer. But now, there are those that... They may not have this it in them to, to suffer. They may not have a minute to, you know, pay the consequences. You know, and my feeling is no shame on them. 
You know, they're just doing what the Bible said. Like there are some people, you know, even in this, like we discussed last week, even during the whole COVID thing, there are pastors, you know, in England and even over here that, you know, decided that, you know, it was better for them and their, and their people that they didn't come to church. And there are other churches that felt like, no, they want to come to church. I am not saying one side or the other. I'm saying do what you feel God is telling you to do and do it. And if you do do it and you suffer for what you feel God is calling you to do, then take the suffering with patience and endure the grief, the scriptures say here. Okay, God hasn't called us to say, you know, we're going to have church and, you know, rally up and let's build sandbags and get all the weapons and let's surround the church here with a bunch of, you know, arsenal. So, you know, when they come and try to get us, that they won't take us alive. No, that's not what he's saying here. OK, that's not what Daniel did, was it? You didn't see Daniel at the window praying with sandbags and, and an M60 out the window ready to fight for his right to pray. You know what I'm saying? No, he did what he was right. When they came to arrest him, what did he do? He went right along in humility, right along with them. Amen. And that's what Peter taught us in that second part of the chapter there. Now, it's interesting here in verse 17 of chapter one, chapter two, it says, look at this. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You notice there how he said, honor men and honor the king, but he said, fear God, amen? And he said, love your Christian brothers and sisters. Love the church, amen? Love the church, fear God, give honor to men, all men, and give honor to kings or governors, all right? And then he talked about, so that was the first subjection we should do is subject ourselves to authority, um, the other thing he talked about in verse 18 is we should, bleh, I can't talk tonight. We should subject ourselves to our employers. All right. That's what verse 18 is talking about. When it says servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward or the difficult to deal with what forward means. Um, in other words, if you've got a Christian boss, you know, show them the do the same amount of work in the same line of integrity for your Christian boss as you would for your boss that's not saved, that maybe actually might be treating you unfairly because you are a Christian, all right? Um, and when we suffer, we should suffer towards God. What we should do is, is we should, instead of blaming that boss for treating us the way he's treating us, what we should do is we should take it and we should give it unto the Lord as a sacrifice. Then I, I'm taking this, Lord, and receive it. And I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you, God. Because look at verse 21. For even hereunto were you called. This is what we were called to. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Amen. This is what the Christian believer was called to do. 
When you came and you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you said, you'll be my Lord and Savior, one of the things that you were making a pledge to do was suffer for his namesake, amen? And it's not enough. I like this in verse 20 here. He says, for what glory is it if when you are buffeted or punished for your faults that you take it patiently? But when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, now this is acceptable with God. All right? So there are many times if you, if you did something wrong and you get punished and you take it like a man, what I tell my boys when it's, when it's punishment time is, I, stand up, take it like a man, you know? But if you take what you deserve, if you take it, that's, you deserved it anyway. There's no special honor in that. But when you get punished for something that you didn't do and you take it, boy, that really gets God's attention, amen? That really gets his attention. And so, and this is what we were called to do, to even suffer unjustly. Right, and this whole book here, this whole chapter is about, you know, actually the first, the, the first letter of Peter is really all about learning how to suffer as a Christian, amen? And it's something that, you know, we need to really embrace, especially in these last days. I love the 80s and the 90s, but, you know, the messages that were coming to the church through the 80s and the 90s, they really kind of deadened our doctrine with regards to the suffering saint and what we were called to. You know, we're not always going to get our way. Amen. And when we don't, we're not to cry like babies. We're supposed to take it on the chin like a good servant of Christ and say, for your name's sake, amen. There'd be a lot less fighting in the church if people did that. A lot less church splits. A lot less problems. They were starting to actually supposed to be family and the holy spirit made it a point to say and the canaanites dwelt in the land and what was he saying there he said the neighbors were watching these people fight with one another over good ground when they're supposed to be representatives of of the lord on high of the judge of the universe of humility they're supposed to be the ones setting the example of how to act with one another. And so the point being here is, hey, man, the world is watching us. The world is watching the church. And boy, when the church starts having little quarrels and fights and arguments over good land, and they're starting to divide themselves with one another, they're out there watching us. And it does not send a good message about what God wants to do in their lives, amen? Because they're probably thinking, why do I want to join that club? So anyway, that's why it's important. And it is also what we were called to. 
And I want to bring your attention to a story. Some of you, probably a lot of you know this, some of you may not, but there's a story in Samuel where King David was king. That's why he was called King David, duh. But King David, he, he received the, the, the throne from Saul. Saul terrorized David, tried to kill him because he was jealous of the anointing that was on David's life. And eventually David came to the throne, amen? And when he came to the throne, he had a son named Absalom. And Absalom began to turn the people's hearts away from his father because he wanted to be king. And when he had heard that the, when David had heard from his servants that Absalom was starting a rebellion to take the throne from his father, David did not arm the city. David took a few of his men and he actually left the city and went into the wilderness. In humility, David did not try to take or keep something by force. And there's a beautiful book that we recommended before, I'll mention again. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. And it's probably one of the greatest books that you can read about how to act. It's the story of Saul, David, and Absalom. And it, David, see, when he, was, when he had a right to the throne because Samuel anointed him king, he did not try to take his position by force and remove it from Saul. Also, when David did become king, when his authority was being challenged, he did not try to keep his throne by force. See, so he didn't try to take it by force, and he didn't try to keep it by force. What he did is he left the city. Why did he leave the city? Because he didn't want Absalom and his armies to siege the city and destroy it. Because he loved Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem's people. So he thought it was safer to leave the city and have Absalom chase him out in the wilderness to settle this thing. To not harm the people. Amen. And that was a great sign of humility that David show, showed the people. And, um, and he suffered, man. He, man, that must have been very humiliating. Especially when he came into the city and took his wives and took his family and you know, he, he really, Absalom really humiliated David. And that was a humbling thing that he had to do. But he did it because he had the spirit of Christ in him. Now look what it says in verse 22. Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The word guile means deceit, okay? Verse 23, who when he was reveled, he reveled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. All right? Let me give you an example of reveled. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Say amen when you're there. Matthew 27. Verse 
39. Matthew 27, verse 39, it says, And they that passed by, they reviled him. Or reviled, how would you say that? Reveled, reviled? Reviled, thank you. Passed by, they wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, buildest it in three days. Like, if you say you're the son of God, you said you can destroy the temple and build it in three days. Why don't you come? You see how they're doing that? That's what it means to revile somebody, to mock them, to say it in a way that is, you know, um, showing contempt without respect, amen? And it says, likewise, in other words, the chief priests were also reviling him in what they said. It says they were mocking him with the scribes and the elders. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Man, can you believe they actually said that? You said you were the, the, you know, the Messiah. Oh, we won't believe you. We didn't believe you. But if you come down from the cross, we'll believe you. Guess what? He came out the tomb, didn't he? And they, he, they still didn't believe him. So they made themselves a liar. 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Man, these are, these are strong words, hurtful words, talking about the, the Savior like this. If God will have him. What a thing to say. So these, this is what it was like. And so when it says in Peter that he, they reviled him and he reviled him not, Jesus didn't from the cross say, huh, you wait, buddy. You wait till I get off this cross. You're gonna, you wait till I get down. When I get done with this, I'm gonna, you're going to burn in hell. I'm going to throw you in the lake of fire. I'm going to cook you like a Christmas goose, brother. You know, he didn't say stuff like that. No. Because he loved them, even when they were mocking him. For this is why he came into the world, amen. So back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23 says... But when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. He did not threaten them. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. Amen. And that's the key. And so for the Christian, when we're, when we're feeling threatened, we are to know that, hey, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know, it is not our job to take revenge. One of the fruits of, 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 a, of a believer is to not have this desire to get revenge or get somebody back for what they did to me. Amen? You cannot have that. You cannot have that. Because if you are really born again, then it means you really believed on the forgiveness of your sins, that you received forgiveness. And if you've really received forgiveness, you can really 
Give forgiveness. Amen. So, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Peter quoting the scriptures out of Isaiah 53 here. All right. He who himself bear our sins in his own body was paid in full, all right? It was paid in full. You know, when, when Jesus, would the, another word that the Bible uses is called propitiation. It is actually, the word there, it's a, it's a Levitical term. It is actually the mercy seat. It is that place where the high priest would come and he would put the blood on the mercy seat and it would cleanse the sin for the entire nation of Israel. All right. And so that's what Jesus was for us. And therefore, our minds, our conscience should be cleansed of sin. We should not be walking around beat down like a, oh, I'm just an old filthy sinner. That's not the mindset that the Christian should have. The mindset that we should have is that we are washed clean, we are free from sin, according to this verse here. He bare our sins, and we are dead to those sins, and we should live under righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. Notice the past tense there. Not, you're going to be healed. You were healed. All right, you were healed. You were healed. Sin, sickness, and servitude. You know, we were healed from all those things. We were healed from our sins. They were washed clean. We're healed from sickness and disease. We're healed from poverty. You know, a servitude, you know, not having the ability to be successful. You know, that curse is not on you. It's not on the church. We have the ability to prosper just like Joseph did. Joseph, he was a prisoner, but it's said that he still prospered. So prosperity has nothing to do with your circumstances. It's what's in you. That's why Joseph was prosperous, because what was in him made him prosperous. The Holy Spirit is what makes the believer prosperous. Amen? Now, in verse 25, he says, For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. All right. So, now he was talking about submission to authorities, and all of a sudden he just needed to burst into a little bit of a... uh, some praise and reminders of who Jesus Christ was and given an example to us. 
And at the bottom of verse 25 there, um, he uses a couple words that I like. He says, but now we are returned to the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. All right? Now, this word shepherd, it's where we get the word pastor from. Because pastor actually means to feed the flock. All right? And when, when the Bible talks about leaders, you know, we've talked about this before in our Timothy study, but there's three words that you need to be concerned about. Uh, the one is elder, then we have bishops, and then we have this word shepherd or pastor. All right? And, you know, different people like to teach it different ways, and they feel different ways. And I've been in church, you know, for a few years, but most, some of you have been in it longer than I have. But sometimes we have this tendency to say people like to believe there's the pastor and then there's the elders and then there's the deacons. And I don't actually believe that, okay? I believe there are elders, I believe there are bishops, and I believe there are pastors, but I actually believe it's the function of the same individual. Why do I believe this? When you study the word elder, it actually is describing the man you know, you know, when he said, go appoint elders in churches, in other words, appoint those senior individuals as leaders, all right? And then the word bishop is talking about the oversight. That is actually, the bishop is the, is the it's what they're in charge of, okay? So elder is who, bishop is what, all right? And then shepherd from the word Poimen, where we get the word pastor, or poimeno means to feed. So shepherd means to feed, to feed the word of God. What did Jesus tell Peter? He told Peter, do you love my sheep? Do you love me? What? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So the elder had oversight, or he is the bishop, to shepherd pastor or feed the flock of God. Amen. And you see that inter, used interchangeably all through the New Testament. So sometimes, so if you really study it out, you can, he's not talking about different individuals there as much as he's talking about what's the function that he's talking about. What is the function of why he's used that word? Amen. Now we like that. We got to have different department heads or leaders or, you know, different people responsible for areas of the church and and you know we use these words but but that's my take on it you know when you when you really study the new testament um you can you can do what you want i put that in free of charge for you tonight so you can uh take what you want out of that but i do want to uh read a couple of things about the pastor or the shepherd and um the first thing is is in 1 Peter chapter 5, which we will get to later on, but let's just touch base on that. Flip the page with me over to chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, Now the elders which are among you I exhort. So he's talking about the men that have leadership in the church. The elders which are among you I exhort, who I am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now that right there is an example because we know Peter was an apostle, right? But an apostle is one of the gifts, right? One of the fivefold gifts 
So you can still have be a five-fold ministry, have a five-fold ministry, but have the, the leadership or the position of an elder in a church, amen? And let me tell you something. The person that is the elder or has the leadership over a church doesn't necessarily have to be, have the five-fold ministry of a pastor. You can have apostles that are the oversight of a church. You can have a prophet that is the oversight of a church. Okay? It just depends on who has been appointed the elder of that church. Now, we tend to always call the person who's the leader of the church pastor. That's just, you know, that's, that's kind of been our tradition. You know, you go to a lot of churches, you know, in, in other communities, they call their pastor bishop. Okay? So, you know, it just depends on where you're from and how you've been growing up. But I'm just sharing this with you so we can get our terms right here because many times it can get confusing because what happens is we actually expect the person who has the oversight of a church to operate in a certain gift that he's not gifted in. Amen? So, but now there is one thing, though, that if you are going to be the oversight of a church, the, the Bible says... Very clearly, Paul told us to Timothy that you have to be apt to teach. Why do you have to be apt to teach? Because if you're going to be the oversight of a church, you're going to have to feed the flock of God. You're going to have to feed them the word. All right? Now, when you talk about the, the fivefold ministry, you know, it, it's interesting how he says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. It's interesting how every one of those gifts was separated by the word some, except for pastors and teachers. Now, we like to call those the fivefold gifts, but I would be inclined to say that pastor and teacher work hand in hand. Why? Because what did God say about shepherds or pastors? They are to feed the flock of God. And the best way to feed the flock of God is to teach the flock of God. Amen? Praise God. So, so chapter 5, he says, I exhort who I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. In other words, he's, remember Peter saw him at the transfiguration, all right? But he also witnessed Jesus' resurrect, resurrection. Look at verse 2. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. You see, now you see how he's using these words there, but that word oversight is actually translated bishop in other places. Same word, just a different English word here. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Look at that. Not by constraint, not being, well, you know, there ain't nobody else that'll do it, so I better do it. But willingly... And not for filthy lucre, or not for a paycheck or a career move, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being an example to the flock. And then, and when the chief shepherd, see, now he flips the words there, when the, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. All right? Likewise, you young people, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And yes, all of you be subject one to another, all right? 
And so you've heard me say this before. You know, if you study the word elder, elder actually means it, the, the word there is talking about our seniors. You know, and we should have, you know, mature men leading in the church. There's nothing wrong with young people leading, but, you know, you cannot throw away the mature men of God, which unfortunately, and you've heard me say this many times, I see that as a pattern in our society today. I see wise, mature men being cast aside for young men because it's fashionable or it's trendy, and it's not right. When Paul told him to go set up elders in the church, and when he was talking about, you know, um, in in Crete, he said, appoint elders in the church. He didn't say appoint satellite churches with big screen TVs. Okay? No, he said, everywhere there's a church established, there should be an appointed elder that is over that group of people. Amen? Because the quickest way you can get false doctrine into a church is have one guy teaching many people through television screens. And man, boy, you're setting yourself up for a, for, for a fall. You know, God wants local pastors and local churches. And that's just, and this is not a pet peeve of mine because it's popular in our city. This is what the Bible teaches. If you really study it out, that's what it is saying, all right? So this isn't Jeremy's pet peeve here. So, now look at a little warning here. Go with me over to, uh, uh, not Acts, let's go to Exodus 34. Or not, did I say Exodus? I meant Ezekiel. Can you handle this a little bit, you know? And I, you know why I'm feeling like I'm going into this a little bit? Because I know there are people in this room that God is calling to leadership. Or I wouldn't be spending the time talking about this. And if you're a young man in here tonight, this message doesn't mean that you can't be used of God in the church. It just means you just make sure you don't have an attitude towards the seniors that are in the church. All right? That's what I'm trying to say. So Ezekiel, what I say? What chapter? 34. Ezekiel 34. Um... Right. You know what's powerful when young people and old people can work together? Young people have an amazing way of looking into the future and seeing where they want to go. But they really struggle to see where they've been. And if you can take a mature person that is wise in years, they can reveal what has come before you, what has happened in the past. We've got 40-year, 50-year members in this church, and I always love to talk to them about, where'd the church come from? How'd this happen? What happened here? Just getting a little background of the things that came before, because we can't cast those things aside. All right, look at chapter 34. It says this. Um, in verse, um, verse 6, huh? Is that what you're thinking? 
Verse 6, verse 6. I think I'm a little further down. I'm going to start at the very beginning. 2, 34, 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds. Woe be to those shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat of the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed. That which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Now, I love that. Listen to this. This is it right here. This really categorizes what you should be doing for people. Feeding them. Verse 4 says you should be healing them. And then look at this. The next one says... You have, you have brought again those which were driven away. So the next thing is, is they should be going out and finding them. Feeding them, healing them, and finding them. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. And now they are scattered because there is no shepherd. You know why people don't come to church or why some of your friends that were believers in times past are out there doing nothing and scattered? No shepherds anymore. I'm not trying to make this up. This is just what the Bible's saying. I feel like everybody's mad at me tonight. I'm just preaching it. I'm just telling you what's in the word. The reason why the children are scattered is it says it right there. The reason why they're scattered is not because there's not a better per- children's program, not because the music's not good, not because of any other, all these, you know, these reasons we try to come up with for church growth. It says it right there. Feed the flock, heal the sick, rescue the rescue, go find the lost. That's it. Look at this. They were scattered and they became meat to all the beasts of the field. That's the enemy out there in the world that wants to take our children and eat them for supper. My sheep wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. Yeah, my flock, they were scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. That's powerful. These guys are out wandering and no one's out there looking for them. That's what I like about you, brother. You know how to go find people. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against them shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock, and neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth. They may not be meat for them. That's a powerful warning, man. You know, there's another place, I couldn't find it in the text here, but one more thing is, is it says that they bring the sheep to a place of rest. Um, and I think that's a good, another good uh, quality of a, of a shepherd.
All right? So just a little warning. Don't really hope that helped you tonight. Just saw the word shepherd there and thought we'd take a little uh, dive into that for a bit. There's many people in here that have been through so many different churches, so many different church problems, and I know that you can say a big amen to all that. Praise God. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Peter. Likewise, all right? So, in other words, likewise, just like he was talking about we should be to governors, be subject to governors, just like we be, should be subject to um, our employers. Likewise, it says here, you wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, I want you to understand something about this word subjection because, you know, the word subjection there is not like, like a woman's relationship to her husband is not like a, a child to his parent. Okay? You know, this is a word that means more like Respond to your husband. And it's a voluntary thing. It's not, it's not a commandment that this is how, that you must do this. You know, children should obey their parents. That's a command. That's not, you don't, you, it's not voluntary, okay? You don't have a choice. My kids do not have a choice whether they want to obey me or not. All right? It's a command. But this is different. Our being, subje- being in subjection to our employers, being in subjection to, uh, you know, civil authorities, these are things that are done voluntarily out of choice, amen? And so it's the same way, you know, that relationship of a wife and her husband. And I like it, use the word, wives respond to your husband. You know, if... If I tell Catherine, hey, honey, how you doing tonight? Hey, I love you. And I don't get a response. That's rude. She ignores me. Now, sometimes if she's mad at me or I'm in the doghouse, she may. But it doesn't last very long. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing worse than, like, telling your spouse, hey, you talking to them and them giving you the cold. Okay? That's, that's not good. And that's not Christ-like. That's not what, how the Christian relationship should be. Um, and I think Peter maybe in, in another thing here, look at the text here. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, talking about if you have husbands that are not obeying the word, that they also may without the word be won by your behavior. Right? Conversations, the word there means being that they may be won by the behavior of the wives. So what is he saying there then? All right, so there, first of all, if, you're, uh, if you are saved and single, you, I warn you, do not marry somebody that's not a believer, okay? That's, our, that's clear in the Bible. That's very clear. I mean, it doesn't, I don't know how people get that confused. It's so clear in the Bible that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. So many times, so many people's like, oh, but I love him. I can change him. I'll win him over once we get married. Well, have you won him over yet? Because your influence to win somebody over, 
The peak of that influence is now, while you're dating. Because once you're married, your influence value, it goes down. It doesn't go up, all right? So if you haven't won them to the Lord before you're married, very rare that you're going to be an influence um, once you are. Now, the thing is, there are people that get married and then one of the, one gets saved, all right? And what he's talking about here, he's talking about wives. If you've got husbands that aren't saved yet, you know, the best thing you can do is zip it and quit nagging them about the Lord all the time. Because the best way to win some, they've already proven that they're not going to be obedient to the word. So you preaching the word to them over and over and over at the breakfast table, making their life miserable is not going to help. What he's saying here to do is, is you need to win them. Look at that, what he says. They may be won without the word, but won by your behavior. And that's the one, I used to always hate that statement that Augustine said. He says, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I was always resistant to that because, you know, like it says right there, how shall they believe in him who have they not heard? How shall they hear except you, there's a preacher. You know, you have to preach, okay? Let's not get into this thing where we can't preach or we shouldn't preach. But in a sense of what Augustine was saying here is is relevant to, to this text here because he's telling the spouse here that you should win your your other, significant other, by your behavior. They should see your life. All right? Now, why is God making the wife subject to the man and not the man subject to the wife? Why is that? That's, this is not a man. You know, everybody tries to make it think that this is a man's idea, that man came up with this plan. Man didn't come up with this plan for women to be subject to the husbands, okay? You want to know who came up with it? God came up with it, and I'll show you. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Okay? Listen to me now, because this is a good thing here. Because I sometimes think, you know, because sometimes men are getting a bad rap. Like, we're like, all of a sudden we're having, you know, these groups that are making these things up. No, this is, God ordained this. And I'll tell you why I ordained it here in a minute. You with me? Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. It says, now unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrows and your conception. In sorrow, you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. All right? Now, the reason why there's rule is because sin brings disorder. Okay? Sin is what caused this. Not your husband. Sin is in the world. And where sin is, there's chaos and disorder. And there's not always going to be agreement. So the buck has to stop somewhere. You know, if you're in a company or you own a business, you know you're the business owner. You have people that you listen to. But at the end of the day, sooner or later, someone's going to have to make a decision, right? Someone's going to have to make a decision. And so... God, in his trying to bring things in order to keep things from going crazy, he has made the husband the head. All right? 
And that's his choosing. That's what he did. And so because of that, that's why Peter can say here, women or wives be subject to your husbands. And this is just a good thing because you're not always going to agree. You're not, we don't always see things the same way. You know, if one person's saying God's telling me this and the other person's saying God's telling me this, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, I know what we do. You know, if I, if I say, you know, something's going to have to be this way, you know, Catherine, if she, even if she doesn't agree with me, she just goes for it, trusting that if I'm wrong, God will tell me. And you know what? He does tell me, and he will tell you. But you just have to trust God that he's going to work it out the same way you've got to trust God that he's going to work it out when he says, you know, employees be subject to your employers who treat you badly. You know, there's this subjection thing that has to be in there. Now, it's voluntary. Not, you know, do this or else, but it's, he's saying, look, it's, this is a better way. Okay, it's a better way is what I'm trying to say. I always get nervous when I talk about this kind of stuff. Because, you know, I mean, I've, I have five daughters, okay? I have five single daughters and three in college. So you start trying to talk this way to them, and, you know, it's like 1970 all over again. But I'm telling you, when you're really born again and you have the Holy Spirit and you let the Lord work in you, my oldest daughter, she's, she's starting now to see how this works. Why? Because she's in the Word of God. You know, she's, she's, she's letting the, the Lord teach her. So, all right, a couple more verses here. Now, verse 2, he says, Why they behold your chaste behavior coupled with fear, right? So, it's really important. If you know friends that are in relationships where their husbands aren't saved, tell them just to take it easy. Just love on their husbands. Cook him his favorite breakfast. You know, I know so many couples, man, who they're so hard on their husbands. Anyway, verse 3. Now look at this. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel. All right? Now, you know, there are denominations that have taken this verse and they have tried to just say that it's not permitted for women to, to, do, to, to do anything with their hair, to wear any makeup, to wear any jewelry. And, you know, and that's not what he's saying here. Because verse 4 says... But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So in other words, he's saying the inside of a woman is what is more beautiful. What's in a woman, all right? And that's what should, where the value should be placed. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with wearing a little Avon. You know, there's no, you know, makeup is, you know, is good. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's helpful. And I say, you know, if you, if you, if you, if there's help available, use it. Amen. Because, you know, I've seen some of those ladies and they look like they just walked out of a morgue and they could use a little bit of color in the face. It's good. It's good. All right. 
But so don't think that, it is, that Peter's saying that it's illegal for a woman to wear makeup or wear jewelry. No, but what he's also saying is, man, you need to look on more than that makeup and then, or that jewelry or that pretty dress. You need to look on what's on the inside of a woman because here's the reality, all right? Once you get married, that makeup and that jewelry and that dress is not what's going to be the strengthening of your marriage, all right? When there'll be times when, you know, that's just not there. And if you married that woman because she had these qualities on the inside of her, you're going to have a long-lasting marriage, all right? Don't be um, just mesmerized by all the outward appearances, what Peter is saying, all right? For after this manner, verse 5, in the old times, the holy women also who trusted in God, they adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their husbands, all right? So, what he's saying here is, is a woman that has a, a humble spirit that is, knows how to be in subjection, it is more beautiful than all the makeup and all the jewelry and all the beautiful hair that they could, they could do. He goes on to reference Sarah here. He says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well, all right, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, verse 7 says, Now, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. All right? And just like Ephesians, like we talked about in Ephesians, and all, there's a few places that the relationship of husband and wife is um, in the Scriptures. And it always comes back down to a give-and-take relationship. You know, women should be in subjection to their husbands, but men should honor their, their wives. Now, you can't treat her like she's a slave. You can't stop doing things, stop doing the little things that make her happy. Um, you have to treat her as she's the weaker vessel. Look at this, as being heirs together. Everybody say heirs together. Heirs together. So in other words, saying, husbands, you've got to treat your wives like you're in this as a partnership. Amen. Heirs together. Praise God. Brother, you got something back there? Bank it loud. Yeah, that worked back in the 1920s and even before that. But my question would be this. So say the man is at home taking care of the kids and the wife is at home as she's working and there's a, there's a disagreement in what they should do. Who has the final say in that? The person that is making the money? Or you know what I'm saying? We can't really look at it under those circumstances because... 
before there was even circumstances, at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 16, God said in order before there was even before there was even the ability of who's going who's gonna to go out and work, who's going to take care of the family, who's going to be responsible for the house. Before there was any of those things, God set the order in at chapter 3. You see, So even if in today's circumstances, my conviction according to the word of God, according to Genesis, yeah, there, there's, it's a common thing. There are women that are professionals, and I have no beef with that. I don't think anybody should. If a woman works hard and goes to school and she's a professional and, and she's making more money and, you know, it's working out for the family that, you know, that she's going to work and dad's going to stay at home, you know, if dad can handle it. I know a lot of guys that can't handle that, but I do know some guys that can't handle it, okay? And so if they're together and then all of a sudden there's some decision-making that's, that's going to be having to, you know, be talked about, and there's a disagreement between them. Who's, who's going to have the final say? The woman because she's making more money? Or, so does that change what God's word says? It doesn't. I think in a healthy relationship there and what would strengthen that relationship for the woman to be a professional and the guy to stay at home would be that there was an understanding that they were going to live their lives according to God's word. And God's word says, look, you know, at the end of the day, the man has the rule over the woman. That's, that's just what the Bible says. So, you know, it's got nothing to do with career. And this is where I think we miss it in our society. We think it has to do with who makes the money makes the decision. Not what Bible, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything about whoever's bringing home the bacon is, is, is making the decisions. God has put an order in place because he has an idea, he's smarter than we are, okay? And he has just made it that way. And if we as people just say, I don't understand it, Lord, and sometimes I don't even like it, but this is what you've said, this is the way you've put it in order, and this is the way I'm gonna follow it, all right? And if we have that attitude, there will be much peace in our lives, amen? Praise God.